All right, welcome everybody to episode number 40 of Collectible Live. Today is Sunday, July the 17th, 2022, and my name is Jeremy Lee. I want to thank everyone who tuned in last time with our guest, Mark Demers. What a great episode. That one has quickly become the most viewed episode in the history of Collectible Live. Let's get to this week's episode. He is, and, and our guest, he is the head of streetwear and modern collectibles at Sotheby's, Brom Walker. Welcome to Collectible Live. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for joining us. We are going to start off the episode as we always do with a, a discussion, an interview. And then at the end, we're going to take a look at some of the assets on the collectible platform that are trading it under comp and uh, some interesting uh, opportunities there. We will get to those shortly. But And as well, to anybody watching, if you want to post your comments, your questions in the chat, please do so. We will work them into the show. Questions from myself or Brom, do not hesitate to post them up. Let's start with you right now, though, Brom. Let us get to know you a little bit. And uh, how did you get into the, sports, into the sports card, the memorabilia, the collectibles hobby? You know, it started uh, pretty naturally. So first of all, I was always, you know, Growing up, I was someone who was super into sneakers. Um, and as I'm sure you know now, there's kind of a, an overlap, right, between sneakers and memorabilia in that there are people who collect sneakers, like the ones that are behind me, dead stock in the box. Then there are also people that collect sports memorabilia, you know, game-worn sneakers, whether it's from Curry or Jordan or whoever. Um, and so I joined Sotheby's. I can, I can get into that a little bit more later. Um, but when I joined Sotheby's, I was sort of in this role as – director of e-commerce development. Uh, and at a certain point, you know, during the pandemic, I did this sale of Michael Jordan's game-worn uh, 1985 Air Jordan 1s. Um, and, you know, it did tremendously well. It went for $560,000. Um, I think at that point, the company kind of stepped back and said, whoa, there's a market here, uh, both in, in sneakers and in sports memorabilia. Um, very shortly after that, we started working on jerseys, um, sneakers, just sort of everything. And over the last three years, it's become a really big department for us. We now have 10 people uh, span across three continents. Um, we have people in Asia, we have people in London, we have people in New York, in LA. Um, and so it's been a business that's that's really growing for us. And that's sort of how I got into it. Right on. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your role at Sotheby's? Uh, I, I mentioned in the in the intro there that you're the head of streetwear and modern collectibles. How how new is that department? Can I call it a department, a division? How new is that vertical at Sotheby's? It's pretty new. I mean, we started basically. So we had our first. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about we, we talk about modern collectibles as really everything like cards or sports memorabilia. Um from a streetwear perspective, we did our first auction in 2019. Um, we sold 100 pairs of the rarest Nikes. Uh, one guy emerged and actually bought the entire collection. His name was Miles Nadal. You can you can read about it. It was kind of a pretty famous thing. Um, but we had to cancel the auction. He just wanted the whole thing, and we did that. Uh, we left one lot to be auctioned, which was a 1972 Nike moon shoe. Uh, it was estimated at 100 to 150,000, and it went for 437,000. So that was one little snippet in 2019. Uh, fast forward to the pandemic in 2020, um, we did the sale of these, you know, Jordan ones, which went for a ton of money. And then shortly after that, we followed it up with a sale of um, 
two jerseys. One was a LeBron jersey. Uh, one was a Michael Jordan's Wizards jersey. And then also three other kind of sneakers in there as well. Um, and then, you know, that went pretty well. Wasn't great, honestly, but, you know, went okay. Uh, and then we went from, you know, one item to five items. And then before we knew it, we did a lot of, you know, a sale of 20 and then 50 and then 100. And then all of a sudden over the last, you know, three years, we've really grown. Uh, we, you know, our, our numbers have been exponential each year. You know, talking 10x, 7x the revenue from the year before. Okay, right on. So you mentioned that, you know, modern collectibles includes cards and 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 uh, memorabilia. Does What else might it include, if anything? I have a feeling there's more sort of types of collectibles in there. Well, I think what it really means, and, and we use it as a broad term, it, you know, it can also be skateboard decks. Um, what, what we really mean is anything that um, is targeting or, or excites a younger group of collectors. So in our department, I think the average age is like 20 to 40 years old. And if you think about the scope of Sotheby's collectors, that's actually really young. Um, you know, and it's, it's what a new generation is caring about. You know, they may not be into European furniture or, you know, uh, old master paintings. They're interested in Air Jordan 1s in dead stock condition in the box. Um, or they're interested in, you know, owning something from Michael Jordan's rookie season or from his last dance season. And like that is the cultural thing that is important to them. And so it's not so much an item. It's it's a group of people that are that are interested in, in kind of newer things. Um, and so in that there is cards and in that there is sports memorabilia and there's skateboarding decks and, you know, Nikes. We did our department did the Louis Vuitton and Nike sale. Uh, we sold 200 pairs of Louis Vuitton Nikes for $25 million, which was a, a huge success. Um, and so it's it's just that. that that's kind of what it means. So when I think of Sotheby's, and Sotheby's is the brand that I've, you know, I'm familiar with, uh, not because of sports cards or memorabilia. I'm familiar with them because they're a traditional, uh, you know, well-respected, long-lasting auction house. And I don't necessarily think of Sotheby's being in the sports card and memorabilia game as I do being in the fine art and real estate. I see Sotheby's real estate yeah. uh, signs on, on people's lawns uh, all over. You know, I've, I've seen them here in Canada. I've seen them in the U.S. Um, is it, you know, how does, how, how does Sotheby's want to roll out this strategy of kind of and marketing too, like when I think of Sotheby's and this might just be, obviously it's my perception, but my perception is sort of that Sotheby's does cater to a more mature audience, let's say. Um, and by that, I'm, you know, people who collect the finer things in life uh, versus the modern collectible. How does, how does Sotheby's market to this new uh, audience that they're trying to reach? Well, I think for one thing, there is a reality in that it's a, a kind of a public interest sector. And so when we put something up, you know, if we put up, you know, we sold uh, Michael Jordan's airships uh, from, you know, 19, from his, I think it was his fifth NBA game. Um, and we put something like that up and I think they went for 1.47 million. Um, and it, I think it broke a world record at the time and still holds that auction record for the most expensive sneakers. Um, you know, the truth is we put that up Every, it, it kind of goes viral. I mean, everybody sees it. Um, and from that perspective, um, 
you know, we, the, the clients kind of find us. I think at a certain point, though, too, what also happens is like, you know, with um, we have crossover clients. So, for example, contemporary art clients are, are buying this stuff as our old master paintings clients, as our car clients and watch clients. So the truth is we're seeing a lot of migration from like these super traditional categories into ours. Right on. And so I, th I find that really interesting because I, I like when we can take two um, almost subcultures of people and, and introduce them or take a subculture and introduce the people from that to something new. And it seems like with your reach, with Sotheby's reach, if you're cross-marketing from one category, I call it a subculture, might not be the right word, I'm not sure, but one demographic of client and you're going to market something new to that, to your traditional demographic, is that going to help to grow these, these sports card and memorabilia hobbies? Are, are, you, are you finding, you mentioned crossover, but is it really, is it a significant amount of, of Sotheby's traditional clients who are kind of learning about memorabilia because Sotheby's has gotten into that business? Yes. So what I would say is like, if you're seeing outsized financial results, you know, we sold Diego Maradona's Hand of God shirt for, it was $9.3 million. Um, it was a tremendously successful sale. Um, you know, we are seeing that, you know, our clients are really interested in these types of items. Um, and in many ways, you know, if you think about it, um, it, it really is like something that can be appreciated in a similar way to a work of art, right? Like if you put a Michael Jordan Last Dance final shirt above your dinner table, um, that is going to instigate some conversation. Like people are going to really have a very intense reaction to that. If it's like really beautifully framed, you know, like you can get, a, a, you know, you can get these things for kind of prices that are far below in most cases, art prices. And at the same time, like they can be super emotional, culturally relevant and instigate like a, you know, real emotional response from anyone that you show your collection to. And so we are seeing sort of these traditional clients come into the space. And I think in some ways it's shaking it up. Yeah. And you know, one thing it's interesting because there's all sorts of new startups coming into sports cards and memorabilia. And I'm, I'm not a much of a memorabilia expert. I can't even say, I, I can't even use the, the word expert in a sentence describing myself when it comes to memorabilia, but I certainly feel that I'm somewhat of an expert when it comes to sports cards. Um, and one, one of my, you know, I think about uh, the fact that Sotheby's has this long list of traditional clients. That's, that's a, it's a great pool to draw from and to introduce sports cards and memorabilia too. If you're, you've got all these startups coming to the hobby now and many of them are there, you know, and marketplaces in, in particular, and even some smaller startup type of auction businesses, they have trouble gaining some traction because they don't have a reputation. Sotheby's doesn't have that barrier. They don't have that hurdle because Sotheby's is such a well-known and respected brand that, I'm my, my I'm leading to the question being how impactful or how how much have you guys been able to reach the traditional sports card and memorabilia collectors versus just your own traditional collectors? Or is the is the current uh, clientele for these things have they come over to Sotheby's or are they starting to uh, to do business with you? 
have you earned their trust? Have you earned their business yet? Is it a work in process? How do you, how are you guys addressing the existing clients versus just sort of your own traditional uh, customers? Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point, I think, I think that there's a lot for us to do still. I think we're still learning about it. I think from a, you know, I sort of talk about the different, um, you know, areas of our business. I think like in streetwear and sneakers, it took us honestly a couple of years to get there where we feel like, hey, we have a whole list of clients that are transacting with us, buying, selling, and the business is starting to, in some ways, run itself. Um, you know, I think in sports memorabilia, we've been honestly very focused so far. We've done very little, but high impact things. You know, so we did, let's say, Michael Jordan's airships, or we did the Maradona shirt. Uh, we've done some other things along the way. Um, we sold Kobe's 81-point shooting shirt, and I think at the time it broke a record for the most expensive shooting shirt. Um, but we haven't done a tremendous amount of volume. And so what you'll see over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months is we're going to begin to scale up this business. You know, so you'll start to see the lock count in our sales rise from candidly 1 to 20 to 50 to 100 and through that we're hoping to you know engage the community and and just be a part of it um you know i think there's always stuff that we can learn um and just grow as the community grows as well will sotheby's uh, and yourself be at the national and atlantic city later this month on, on having a, a display booth at all uh you know we won't I'm, I'm sad about it honestly the truth is i uh i have a five-month-old that uh you might have heard crying for a second there and the other room before my wife whisked her away outside and she knows I'm being interviewed. Um, and so, you know, getting, uh, let's just say going East for now, I'm, I'm based on the West coast. I'm, I'm trying to stay local for the time being. Okay. No, I, I definitely understand <laughs> if you have a young one in the house now and congratulations on, on having a, a, a five month old. I think you said that's uh, that's wonderful. Let's take a moment. Let's go to some comments that have come in. Jake Dahl, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm going to read this from Cards and Comics. It says, collectibles is more like a Ponzi scheme. We assume that the future value of what we are buying will make up the amount we are spending or losing on things like breaks. And I mean, my, my only comment is if that, I, I don't agree with this Cards and Comics. I think if that's your perspective, I think you're doing it wrong. Um, that's all I, that's all I really, and it's certainly not a Ponzi scheme. It just doesn't fit the definition. Uh, Gem Mint, good evening uh, to you. Welcome to the show. T-Dot throws this one, Brahm. I am going to ask you a bit of this question. He says, do you feel artificial and true rarity have met with sports cards to drive into Sotheby's? Love the crossover from art. Now, I'm not sure I actually understand this question as it's written, but what I do take from it that I want to ask you is, you know, in sports cards, we, we have this, we have, you have sort of this organic rarity, you know, cards that were produced in 1910 that uh, that managed to survive until now in whatever condition versus a card that was printed last year with only three or two or one copies made being more, more of a um, artificial scarcity, as people call it. How does the Sotheby's mindset process this sort of, this sort of, uh, I guess, um, difference between, you know, rare art is rare art. There's no manufactured rare art. It's these, these pieces were painted in the 1800s, early 1900s. So, um, how, I mean, and how do you look at that? Do you value, 
do you value this this manufactured scarcity or artificial scarcity yeah. as much as you do organic? It's a really it's a really interesting question, actually. Um, and by the way, you see this in cards, but you also see it in almost every other collecting category. Um, and it's in some ways, it's like a little gimmicky, you know, like Nike, for example, will make sneakers that are, you know, they'll, they'll make a smaller quantity, but a greater number of them. So in other words, like, you know, they'll have a particular colorway, they'll only make a thousand of it, but the same series, they'll make 10 different iterations, which is exactly the same as what you're talking about in cards, right? Where, you know, they make a certain, a very small population um, then they make a lot of that small population in, in different variations, subtle, you know, or just different players. But I kind of view, you know, scarcity that's inherent in the object as more valuable than artificial scarcity. So, like, that's why when you think about a T206 Honus Wagner, it kind of bears that, that you know, cultural significance because its rarity is really based on just how many exist naturally out in the wild, um, and so I think, does that sort of help answer how I view it? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you're, you're kind of leaning the way that I believe, uh, a lot of us are leaning, which is that, that organic or natural scarcity and rarity is more desirable than the manufactured with that said though, Brom, I mean, even though, you know, nowadays there's, there could no, there could not be such a thing as this natural scarcity in sports cards anyway, because we take great care of them right out of the pack. People, kids didn't care about that back in 1910, 1920, 30, 40, 50, 60. It wasn't a thing. So there's really no chance for that organic slash natural scarcity from really 1990 forward because we're so we're, we're so careful with the condition of our cards. So the only way to have any any scarcity in sports cards is to manufacture that scarcity. So I don't think one is better or worse than the other. I think they are both sign of their times. And, and to say that, you know, manufactured scarcity is, um, you know, below beneath uh, the more organic scarcity. I understand people's preference for it, but I don't know that one is better or worse than the other. Do you have any comment on that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if one is better or worse. I think, you know, there is, you, you do see, I think, kind of sometimes, you know, from, from really older objects, kind of outsized value with that organic. Um, but at the same time, like you said, the truth is the demand, it's impossible because the market is just so much bigger. Like these card companies have to produce so many cards. And naturally, a lot of people care about all of them and, and you know, grade them, store them, that's it. You know, so I, I totally understand your, your perspective as well. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Let's go to another question here. Jake Dahl wants to know, did Sotheby's sell the million dollar Babe Ruth game worn jersey? Um, well, I, we've definitely sold Babe Ruth jerseys throughout our lifetime. I mean, we, the truth is we did sports memorabilia for a number of years, especially even before I got there. We, we took a hiatus for about 10 or 15 years um, and now we're doing it again. So I don't want to speak to what may have happened before. We've definitely handled Babe Ruth items in the past. Awesome. Thank you. Rocco Rosado is in the house. He says, thanks for the insights in the high-end asset market. I recall Sotheby's being one of the first traditional auction houses to offer sports cards back in the 90s with Topps Vault items. So that's in, that's neat to know. I wasn't I wasn't aware of that, Rocco. And uh, so maybe coming full circle, anything uh, to add to that, Brom? 
No, I think it's, you know, the, the truth is, is that we had for, for a very long time, you know, a really robust department that did this. I think for, you know, a period of time, we just sort of changed strategic directions. And now we're obviously with the success of the market, which many of the people on this call are the reason for that. Honestly, we'll talk about, I know we're going to talk about market participation later. Um, but, you know, I, I think we basically saw what was happening. We're like, okay, well, this is this is something that we need to be a part of too. Yeah, no, makes sense to me. Global sports card investor. Yes, it's been a while. Good to see you again. Well, welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, T dot says uh, true rarity is king time and pressure like a diamond. And I mean, that's, you know, T dot is not alone uh, in that uh, taking that position for sure. Uh, Global says there was a perfect storm in 2020 with all the COVID effects and it was inevitable that there would be a market reaction that we currently see. Fair enough. And we have seen markets going up and down. And we're going to talk a little bit about that a little bit later. Jemmint has a question for you, Brahm. He says, uh, curious to hear if any of Sotheby's traditional clients have expressed doubts or concerns about sports cards and memorabilia. And if so, what are your what answers, what your answers are when they raise those concerns? Yeah, I think we haven't had a tremendous amount of concerns. I mean, I think everybody, whether you know you're in sports memorabilia or cards or fine art or watches or honestly even handbags, you know, Birkin bags have such an unbelievable secondary market uh, status. But like, you know, the truth is, is that they can, they all fluctuate. They all go up and down, especially depending on like mac macroeconomic things that are happening. Um, I think that our clients generally understand, you know, the cultural significance of what we're selling, you know, and I think that a that's what a lot of this stuff comes down to in my mind is, you know, if you're a kid growing up and you see Michael Jordan walk out onto court in, in his Air Jordan 1s and then you become immensely successful in your business career, you know, and, and you think about what you want now, well, you might want a game-worn pair of Jordans. Um, and, you know, that's a, a memorabilia buy. And I think people, especially the these successful clients who have, um, you know, made their way in the world that are now deciding, hey, what do I want to buy? What do I want to invest in? I think they're actually understanding it. And so we haven't gotten a tremendous amount of concerns to answer that question. Well, it's good to hear. That's good to hear. Thomas Peterson says auction houses go where the money is. I mean, so does everybody in humanity, though. Don't 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 you take a better job if you get if you get uh, offered more money or aren't you going to want to sell people what what uh, what they want to buy? That just uh, kind of goes without saying. T dot wants to know what's your cut with the, when the gavel slams? What sort of fees does uh, Sotheby's charge? So I would say to uh, to take a look uh, if you go to Google and you type in Sotheby's buyers premium. Um, you'll see, but basically like there are tiers. So at a certain level of value, I think on the, our lowest level of value, we take like 26% of the sale from the buyer side. Um, and then it goes down. So, you know, if, you, if it's a $50 million item, we're not, we're not taking 26%, um, but you can, you can just type into Google and it will pop up like our whole fee structure. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. All right. Thank you for that. What about you yourself? Do you collect anything? Have you picked up anything recently for your personal collection? Yeah, for sure. So I definitely collect sneakers. Uh, these are LV Nikes behind me. Um, so we did this Louis Vuitton Nike sale. Um, like I said, we sold 200 of them for $25 million. It, it raised a ton of money for charity. And uh, they, you know, when they're, they're now doing their drop, but they, they let me purchase a pair, which is pretty cool. And so I had this thing made. 
Um, and then I actually just picked up my first game worn purchase. Um, I bought a John Morant uh, game worn jersey. Uh, it's super beautiful. I'm like so excited about it. It's crazy because I'm, I, I personally am used to like selling the moment. You know, that's what that's what selling sports memorabilia is about. It's about selling the athlete, selling that period in time, that specific moment. But now that I actually own an item and I'm like looking at that game, he had like a great dunk in that game. He, he, he did a shot from like, you know, half court. Like, I feel like I own the moment, you know, like I actually like I have this like owner. Like I watch him play and I'm like, oh, I, like I own that moment. Um, and actually, I think that's kind of cool when you talk about a fractional because, you know, you can do that kind of in scale. I mean, you can buy a share and feel like you own the moment, you know, and you do. Um, so that's kind of a, a cool thing. Yeah. Well, congrats on, on that item. Are you a John Morant fan? Are you a Grizzlies fan? No, you know, the truth is, is that, uh, I just think he's a super dynamic player. I think, you know, his dunk wise, you know, just unbelievable. And so I just was sort of seeing the public respond to him. I was also talking to a friend of mine who was, who was telling me about his own son's reaction. He's where you know, he sees all the kids walking around in John Morant jerseys and, you know, that when it permeates to, to people's kind of kids, you know, you know that like you're dealing with somebody who's like culturally significant. And so I thought, you know, hey, if his career progresses, this is going to be like a really great investment for me personally. Yeah, no, that, that yeah, I think I like when how you just said that when when it permeates culturally, you know, or into people's kids that, you know, that the guy might be culturally relevant. You know, he's, he's often described as a bit like uh, Allen Iverson in terms of just his swagger and that, do you see similarities there yourself? Yeah. I think in like, you know, he has that, he has like that kind of like, he has like a cool personality and like, you know, you see him do all these commercials. I saw him do like this commercial for Uber Eats and I was like, man, like this is an Uber Eats commercial. Like how straightforward can you be? Like, you know, it's got to be pretty vanilla. And I was like, this is, you know, pretty cool. He has yeah. that. Right on. Jim Mint says, uh, great guests on this show. Keep up the great. Thank you so much, Jim Mint. But I have to give credit where credit is due. And that is really to uh, to Nick Sapiro and, uh, and Ezra Levina Collectible, who've been lining up the guests for Collectible Live for the past uh, several weeks. So uh, and I have I have reached out and said, great job, guys. Keep 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 this guest pipeline going. And uh Pleased with that, with of course Brom as well. But thanks for the comment, Jemit. Can you just tell the audience and myself a little bit more more about, you know, Sotheby's? Um, I, I don't want to say entry into this because obviously they've been there before. But you know, just anything else about Sotheby's, your group, your division, being uh, co modern collectibles and streetwear. Anything else you'd like the uh, the audience to know about what you're doing in your group? No, what, what I would say, you know, for, for anyone that's watching is we're a department that, uh, that cares a lot about what the market is doing, what the market wants. And so, you know, I, I can go more into anything you want to in specific, Jeremy. But one thing I would say is that for anyone that's watching, if you have creative ideas for things that we can do or ways that we can service the market or categories or, or things that we should be doing that we're not right now, um, literally DM me through Instagram and, you know, let's talk. Um, but you know, we're, we're just really open to, to new ideas and we're looking forward to what the future brings. That's great. And thanks for that. And I just, I'm excited to know that Sotheby's is in there and I hope that you guys, you know, 
work on the sports card area too, because yeah. I would think that with your traditional clientele, we could see some growth. We could see some new entrants come in. You know, we look at it, we being us card collectors, we look at cards as our generation's artwork. I'm not interested in a Picasso or a Van Gogh hanging on my wall. Number one, I don't have 40, 50 million bucks, but I'm not, that doesn't interest me as much as having a piece of cardboard. And I would think that a lot of other people who value these these relics, these 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 pieces of of art that represent then something. Because let's face it, a sports card, a, a painting. There's really no intrinsic value except the enjoyment you get from looking at these. You can't eat them, you can't live in them, you can't wear them. They're not going to meet any basic human need. They are really just for enjoyment, and that's where the value comes from. So if I'm a if I'm a collector of modern art or or you know early furniture. Uh, mid-century modern artifacts, whatever it might be, yeah. I might be prone to be interested in sports cards too if a brand like Sotheby's was marketing it to me. Does that make sense? It does. And I think it's a, you know, first of all, you know, I'll be the first person to tell you that my, where my, you know, more on the side of sports memorabilia, right, than I, than I am on the side of cards. Um, and what I mean by side is that I, I know less about cards than I do about sports memorabilia. Um, what I would say is that we are, really interested in it. I do think it has a tremendous amount of cultural and personal appeal to so many people. You know, even for me, right, and I think about, you know, my weekends as a kid, you know, what I would do every single weekend, every single Sunday is I would go to Alex's MVP on the Upper East Side. I don't know if you've ever been there. It used to be this card shop. Um, I would break open packs with my dad and then we would go have, we'd go to like a crappy little deli and, you know, we'd have like uh, sunny side up eggs and like that was that's what I did on the weekend as like a kid. And so, like, you know, now, like when I look at a lot of the cards that I had, which, by the way, got thrown away when I went to college and, you know, I'll never really mentally recover from that. But, yeah. you know, it, the, the truth is, is that it has that kind of personal cultural importance to so many people. And we see that um, and also an up and coming generation. And so. It's something we want to get into more. And I think you're going to see um, we're having conversations with different people in the community now. And it's something that you're going to see over the next year. You're going to start to see cards at Sotheby's. You will. Great. That's awesome to hear. What sort of insights can you share with us uh, that, that you that you can provide based on your experience at Sotheby's and with other classes of collectibles that might apply to sports cards and memorabilia that perhaps some of us aren't thinking of top of mind right now. Could you expand on the question a tiny bit? I didn't fully, I guess, understand it. Yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to get out of you any sort of insights that you would have that maybe the way markets respond or how collectors think, how collectors and investors think that you've seen in yeah. other areas of collectibles maybe some strategies that could be applied into sports cards and memorabilia that, that seasoned collectors and investors are applying in other classes of collectibles. Yeah, for sure. So, um, well, I would say two things. One of the most interesting things to me that I often get from clients is I'll, I'll have clients who are very, very active in a particular market. So let's say they bid in nine out of 10 of my auctions, right? And they're, they're sort of active in it. And then they decide for whatever reason, I'm gonna sit this one out, the, the, the last auction, I'm gonna see how the market does. Um, and then like maybe, you know, a few items don't do as well as they might've done and they'll go, you know, 
well, is the market, is the market having an issue? You know, and, and the truth is, I think people sometimes forget that they themselves are the market. You, you know, by participating in an auction, you become the market. In fact, make the market. So, you know, if you are bidding on a, you know, on a Curry Finals jersey and you drive it up to $300,000, you are part of the reason that the, the, the market is going to value that item at $300,000 from then on. Um, and so what I would just say is like, that's a, that's a really interesting thing to stop, to step back and recognize that markets are not infinitely deep. You know, they're made up of participants and the people that are in that space, you, you know, you make it um, what it is. It, and then in terms of the second part of your question, which is strategy, there is so much interesting auction strategy. I mean, I could talk to you about it all day. One of the most amazing things that I've seen, though, is I have some, not a ton, but most people is like a natural thing and myself included. I cannot get myself to bid early in an auction for whatever reason, like. I am waiting until the last possible second. And like every other person, I just throw in my bids when there's like one second left, which by the way, doesn't really even make a difference in terms of an item finding like it's equilibrium. Um, but what I have seen, which is effective is sometimes people will come into an auction and bid really big early. And so what, what happens is, is that they just bat down the competition and then like the competition is like, you know what, screw this. Whoever's on the other end of this, like I'm not going to win. I'm out. And then that person who's bids big early actually might get it for a better price in the end. Cause they've like big stick the other person into, you know, into kind of giving up. I've seen that sometimes. Yeah. It's funny because that's my approach when I'm bidding on cards on a platform like eBay is like you said, I put in my bid with one or two seconds left. That's my highest bid I'm willing to pay. If I win it, great. If I lose it, that's okay. It went for more than I was willing to pay. But I've often wondered about that strategy because I've all, I've been the guy who's backed away because someone else big stick me. And it's yes. like, okay, because sometimes if I if there's a card that I really want, but I'm kind of like not sure where the bidding is going to be, I will make my first bid with like 10 or 15 seconds left and I'll see if it's the high bid. And if it is the high bid, I will often put in another bid just to get a bit higher, you know, to, to ward off the, the, the people who are coming in at the last second to, uh, to, to place their bids. But I have been big sticked where I come in, I put in that first bid 15 seconds early and I'm outbid. I'll put in another one. I'm outbid. I'm like, ah, someone's going to, I'm, I'm going to let someone else get it. And they might get it for less than I would have otherwise bid them up to. Right. And, you know, waiting until the end of the auction is also not always the best, like, psychological move. Because then all of a sudden, like, you don't really want to be in a flustered place when you're bidding. You know what I mean? You want to be, like, in your most calm, rational, you know, like, deep thinking self. That's, that's when you want to be placing bids. When there's, like, one second left on a clock, like, you can imagine what that bid is like. It might lead to a decision which is not the right one for you. Um, anyway, so I've seen that as like an interesting big strategy and there's a thousand other examples too, you know, but uh, it's definitely interesting. Well, let me, let's talk about this for a moment. We're going to get to some comments uh, after this topic, everybody, but I want to know um, restoration. You know, it's a very, when it comes to sports cards, it's like, it's like the worst swear word that you could think of. It's a vulgarity when it comes to, 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 to sports cards. 
And the reason I'm asking is because it seems like restoration is okay in so many other types of collectibles, whether it's books or comics or um, memorabilia, art, um, vehicles. Vehicles are restored all the time and sell for huge money. Why Why do you think, and, and you're someone who's coming from sort of outside of the sports card world, you're more into other collectibles, including memorabilia. How does someone who is not a card person, but is okay with restoration on the collectibles that they're most interested in, how do they view and, and really come to, are they surprised when they learn that in the world of cards, us collectors are not tolerant to any form of restoration? So why don't we talk about in terms of like a few different worlds for a second. So like, if you think about, let's call it old master paintings, right? Those, you know, you're talking about things from the 1700s. Most of them have endured some type of damage. And because they're, you're talking about, you know, something that can be, you know, 300, 400 years old. It, it just, it goes hand in hand. It's going to have some level of restoration. I think the market has adjusted for that. Now, by the way, that's not to say that if there is an immaculate work of art that, that is that old and for whatever reason has not been restored and it is in excellent condition, it often does achieve an outsized price. Um, what I would say, though, in terms of uh, – and I'll break down one more point. So in terms of game-worn memorabilia, I think that restoration has become a kind of a hot-button issue because for certain levels of the asset class – um, particularly when it comes to sneakers, right? Like Air Jordan 3s were not meant to be collected. They were meant to be used and disposed, right? That They have polyurethane soles. So those are not going to last. And so what you see now is if you have a, you know, look, a $10,000 pair of game-worn sneakers and you set it to a store, they swap out the midsole. I've seen that double in price um, because, you know, it's at, it's at a lower level. And the collectors, you know, who are buying at $10,000, like, you know what? I want to own a piece of Michael Jordan's career. I don't care so much. When you get to something that's half a million dollars, all of a sudden restoration is a really tricky trade-off because there are certain collectors out there in the market who operate at the highest levels who will not buy anything that's been restored. Like it, it makes them like want to puke, um, you know, and then, of course, you know, there, there might be somebody out there who doesn't care. And you just have to kind of, as the owner, make this decision of, am I going to take this super important item that's worth maybe a half a million dollars or more and put it through this restoration? And, and who knows, you know, if I might tick off this one group of collectors, but get this other group, like, I just don't know. And so you're sort of left with the bag there. Um, and then with cards, I mean, I think it's, it's super interesting because it's an it's an uh, a class of collectibles that it where its value is so dependent on condition, and condition meaning you know in its original state and not altered, and so what'll be really interesting is in you know a really long time you know in in hundreds of years you know what what are the cards going to look like and then what are people's feelings on restoration going to be. They don't have optionality. Um, and so I hope I sort of answered some of the things that crossed my mind. I know in cards, it's a super hot button issue. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's just an absolute no-no. And uh, 
you know, we you talk about, you know, a, a painting that could be three or 400 years old that has some, some natural degradation to it because time has passed and, and materials disintegrate, that sort of thing. I think about old sports cards, you know, damage that is done to them itself is altering the card. Now, you know, if I have a, if I'm a kid in 1925 and I drop a card on the ground and it has a ding corner, I altered the card by dropping it. Now, if I'm going to try and remove that, that, that bent corner, all of a sudden I've, I've altered it or I've tried to improve it. And that's not look, that's looked upon poorly. So it's, you know, why isn't dropping the card and damaging it looked upon poorly? That's natural, but trying to fix it is is unnatural. I know it's a little bit of a crazy sort no, of way to look you, at it. But... You have a point. You have a great that that is such a good point. Um, or just like a kid, you know, would would kind of like tack it, you know, to the board, right? It's like, you know, I, I have cards, I have a couple of Babe Ruth cards and they're, you know, they have little tack marks um from at some point when somebody did that. Um I mean, I, I see I see the logic there for sure. I think at some point, probably the, the market will reconcile what you're saying. I think like, it has to do really with trying to deceive somebody. That's really what the, the sports card hobby is really not tolerant of, is being deceived. And if you are, you know, your pinhole example is a really good one. If you're a kid in the 50s and you take your, your prized Mickey Mantle card and you pin it to your wall, you've altered the card. You know, but no one cares that you did that because you did it innocently. You did it without any ulterior motives to deceive anybody or profit. But if I'm now 50, 60 years later going to take that card and I'm going to try and fill it know, in, fill it in, that is very bad. That's a very bad thing because oftentimes you're doing that and trying to hide the fact that it ever had that pinhole in it. And the hobby does not respond well to that. They We just don't tolerate it at all. So... It's uh, but you're right. It is an interesting sort of way to look at it. And that's why I raise it because I think that we often, uh, as a hobby, um, kind of, kind of rush to some conclusions at times. And if you think things through, you might see sometimes how some of our, some of the, the kind of, um, just generally accepted rules of the hobby, do they make complete sense or not? And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I believe in what we believe in. But I sometimes question if it's if they're completely thought through. Yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. I'm, I'm definitely not on not on the side of restoration. Let's be clear with that. Uh, T dot here says restoration is a swear word because of volumes in sports cards. I think I understand what he's saying that you know there's so many other options to find an unrestored copy that why do you need to restore versus fine art? These are all one of ones. So if it's going to survive and be presentable, it needs to have some restoration work done to it, I think is what TDOT is saying there. Uh, Brendan Ryan says, if you can tell it's been restored or even conserved, it was done poorly. And that's a, Brendan Ryan brings up a really good point here. There's a difference between restoration and conservation. And um, I think, you know, we don't need to get into what these are, but are, are you aware of a difference between restoration and conservation as it applies to other types of collectibles? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think restoration, what restoration means to me is I am altering the physical properties of the item. Conservation to me means I am keeping the physical item in as pure of a state as I can without changing it. Um, you know, I think it's really an interesting issue when, you know, like you said, if, if people are doing these things with the intent to not be noticed, 
The question that I have is if auction houses become savvy to that or grading companies become savvy to that and they call out that this has been altered in this and this and this and this way, you know, does that sort of, or if it comes with its own, you know, let's say document that says exactly what's been changed, would that change your opinion, Jeremy, of what the object is that you're buying and make you more comfortable? Well, that's a great point. You know, you can you can find cards all day long um, on any platform, really, mostly on, on like you know the Becketts, the PLBCCs, where they've got these PSA slabbed cards with qualifiers on them, saying you know trimmed or or recolored, what whatever it may be. These are cards that have been uh, restored, I guess you could say. But you then know about it, and if you want to go and purchase it. By all means, go purchase it. There are some really nice 52 Tops Mickey Mantles that are trimmed that would be more than welcome in my collection, but I'd want that slab to say trimmed. I don't want to, I don't want to deceive, nor do I want to be perceived as wanting to deceive anybody down the road. So if I'm going to own a card that is trimmed, I want it to be slabbed as such so that I can be very open with anybody who's ever going to see that card, especially if I all of a sudden, you know, upon, you know, Whenever it happens, I'm no longer here and someone else is going to inherit this card that at least the, the potential market for it knows what it is that they're going to potentially acquire. All right, let's uh, go to one comment here and then we're going to look at some assets on the collectible platform that are trading at under comps recently. TDOT here says there are rumblings about the card and memorabilia market 10xing in value. Do you feel that? Can you speak to you know your you know yours and maybe if you can speak on behalf of Sotheby's outlook on the sports cards and memorabilia uh, industry hobby uh, as you know over the next few years? Well, you know I'll speak to um, memorabilia in specific. I'm going to speak to game worn. Um, what I like about that market is that you know when I see some markets that go like this, right? Like it's an exponential growth chart. You know, it makes me feel one way. Um, what I'm seeing basically in the game-worn market is it's kind of like this slow uptick. You know, it, not slow, um, but, you know, it, it doesn't feel, let's say, as, as robust in growth as some other markets that have popped up um, over the last few years. And I'm actually not even thinking of sports cards. I'm thinking about a totally different market. Um, and, and so what I would just say is, like, I can see over time the trajectory for that really – you know, potentially in increasing. You know, and what I'm basically getting at is I think that, like I was saying earlier, I think that people are sort of understanding that, hey, these are displayable objects um, that mean a lot to a lot of people and ultimately mean a lot to me. You know, so those are the things that people think about when they're buying an asset like this, right? It's like, can I display it in a way that's cool? Check, right? With the jersey, especially checked. Um, does it mean something to me? Do I have a dialogue with it when I look at it? Um, check. And will other people who come over to my house have a dialogue with it when they look at it? Also check. You know, if you be in New York and you've got Derek Jeter's, you know, first home jersey, you know, people are going to respond to you uh, and to it. And I think with cards, too, you know, it does have that cultural importance. You know, if I, if I went over to someone's house and they – you know, and they pulled out their Gem Min 10, you know, Fleer, Michael Jordan, you know, I would feel that kind of nostalgia and I would also be impressed. And so I think you, you know, you feel that and you feel that amongst your other collectors who are also in the hobby with you. So ultimately, I think it's a, a rising market. And I think that's, that's why we're a part of it. 
Yeah. So it makes sense to me. Uh, thanks for that. Bobby Burrell. And thanks for that question. Bobby Burrell says the only reason for restoration is one thing. Let us not dilute the integrity of the hobby. And that might be one of the best ways I've ever heard it said is let us not dilute the integrity of the hobby. And, uh, and I think if you're going to fully disclose as a seller, as a grading company, as a, an owner of a piece, if you are going to fully disclose what the item is and the, as much of its history as, as you are aware of that you can disclose, um, then I think the integrity should remain intact. I think, I think. Okay. Uh, and what do we have here? Tito says the best analogy to cards was by Patrick Bet David. Fi finite like pieces of land that gives them their value. Fine. Yeah, and that that almost ties into the whole thing that of what collectible is doing with, with fractional. It's a it's a piece of that player or a piece of uh, of representation of a player. Um, I want to ask you, and I ask all the guests at Collectible Live is uh, what are your thoughts on fractional investing in sports cards and memorabilia as they as it fits into the overall hobby landscape, considering that fractional, formal fractional, is relatively new in these hobbies? I think it's a really cool thing because you can you can own a, a piece of the moment, you know, and that's kind of what I was talking about before. It's like, you know, you think about these athletes and, the you know, in the zenith of, the, of their career, you know, when when, you know, they're really like, defining themselves and these these assets can be worth you know millions of dollars i mean you know 99.9% .9 of people can't buy them outright i cannot buy one outright you know it's like i like the idea that you know people can share in owning these moments together you know that it can be the public that owns these items um as a group and you know when when that athlete um you know continues to rise over time of course hopefully you know, sharing the upside of that. Um, and I think that's just a cool thing, you know, like you could be scrolling through Instagram, you know, and see the Jersey that you just bought a share in, right. You know, on, you know, you know, you see a picture of the athlete wearing it or a video of the dunk or whatever that is. Um, but I think that's what makes it so cool and so compelling. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree for sure. Uh, Sancho wants to know, is it illegal to take off the wax from a FLIR sticker card? And I can just say, no, it's definitely not illegal. When you own a card, you can do whatever you want with it. I think what's not what, what what's frowned upon is altering a card, restoring a card, sometimes even conserving a card is frowned down upon by the hobby if you're not going to be, uh, if you're not going to disclose it. But when it comes to removing wax from a card, like the wax wasn't there when the card came off the, the printing process, the, the printing machine either. It was added later. So did that alter the card and now you're just reversing the alteration of it by by applying this the substance and then removing that substance chicken or the egg kind of conversation we don't have to get into it but i think you understand where i'm coming from on that and i'm not leaning one way or the other i lean towards i like my cards the way they came out of the pack and i don't want much changed about them anything to respond to that with from no i just had this uh let me let me ask you a question this is yeah. a question for you personally Okay. Uh, a friend of mine recently discovered, you know, a bunch of cards that he had in his attic. Uh, one of them was a Mickey Mantle card uh, without specifying the year. Good condition card. Um, appeared to have on the back almost like there had been like a tiny bit of a sticker there at some point, but removed in great condition. But like theoretically, you could, you know, remove the gunk that was left from that card and it would be in better condition. 
I think that's kind of the point that you're talking about. It's like it, it came off the printing press in a certain condition. The actual condition underneath that sticky material, I would argue, was probably not altered. And you could probably remove it without damaging the card. At the same time, I do view that as a restoration. And so I think it would affect the value. Not, it's that's, not conservation. So I'm, I'm curious to know, though, your, your opinion on that. That's a real tough one. I mean, I've never been, I've never had to deal with that. But I can tell you that when I get a card from wherever, uh, it comes in the mail on a mail day, I get a card and maybe there's a, I don't know, some residue on the, you know, if it's a thick card, some like glue maybe on the edge that didn't, that yeah. wasn't removed. I'm going to try, try and pick that off. I don't want it on my card. So if I can, if I can pick it off, I'm going to try and pick that little piece of glue off because I don't want it to stick to my holder. Is that, am I doing something wrong there? I don't know. You know, it's my card. I, I want to take yeah. that off. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll, you know, I'll blow dust off it. If I see a, a, a an eyelash on it, I'm going to blow that eyelash off. Do I, am I, am I meant to let it stay there? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's uh interesting interesting discussions you know you often have the the powder from the gum can be on the card not 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 the not wax not gum itself but the powder from the gum can be on there is it wrong to blow it off to you know on the card so it, it flies off i don't think there's anything wrong with that so. but you know we're getting to some pretty funny sort of situations here um is that did i answer your question though like the gunk the for gunk me yeah mentioned? i mean 100 you did yeah, the gunk wasn't there when the card was made. Um, if it's my card and it's raw, I'm probably going to try and take that gunk off just with my fingers. You know, I'm not going to use any special chemicals or solvents. I'm not a chemist that way, but I'm probably going to try and get rid of as much of it as I can with my fingers. Makes sense to me. All right, let's uh, let's run through some comments and we're going to look at these uh, these assets that are trading under comps. Uh, let's see. Tida says, as values go as high as they are, split ownership is a certainty. Well, it's already happening. So yeah, and I think it, it makes sense to me. Uh, and Sancho says, but if PSA can't tell us someone did something, what are people supposed to do? Yeah, good point. Not much that you can do. Tida wants to know, do you believe in humidified control holders for cards? Secondly, the card need to be as original as possible. I mean, humidified controlled holders or, uh, you know, safety deposit boxes or safes. Yeah, I think that is definitely important uh tita says you can take off but not add you know foreign materials to a card and i think that's pretty much a generally accepted position as far as cards go um so okay let's switch it up rom we're gonna look at i've got six items six six assets trading on the collectible platform right now uh that are trading under comps if you are watching listening right now and you are a collectible customer you are on their platform. There is a there is a, a link to assets trading under comps. And when you go to them, you actually see what the comps are. So I've got some pictures and some comp slides as well. So let's look at the first one. Brom, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. These are all cards. I know you're not totally a card guy, but I'm probably going to find a way to ask you a question on these anyway. So here's the first one. This is, by the way, this is one of my favorite cards because I love these flashback rpas this is not a true michael jordan rookie rpa rookie patch auto but it is you know a flashback so uh he never had any rookie patch autos there wasn't such a thing back then to me this is as close as it gets anyway this is a 2009 10 exquisite rookie patch flashback michael jordan numbered out of 23 can't really see it but trust me this is numbered out of 23 
in a BGS 8.5 holder. Now, this asset is trading on collectible right now at an overall value of $80,850 or $4.90 per share. If we look at the comps, you can see right here, again, I just said it's trading at $80,850. We can see courtesy of Card Ladder, the recent comps are 108, 120, 133, 125, all in the last year and a half or so. And then of course, you know, sort of very beginning or right at the beginning of the pandemic, more 70,000 where cards were back then. But uh, we're this card is trading at 80,000 right now. And the most, most, the four most recent comps are, are, are significantly higher by at least 25, 30%. So that might be a nice opportunity on the platform. And, uh, and I personally love the card. If I was eligible to buy cards, on collectible, I can't because I don't have a social security number because I'm I'm Canadian. Uh, I would definitely be buying pieces of this card, um, or I just try and buy a card like uh, the whole card myself sometime. Maybe make an offer. All right, uh, Brom, what do you think about what do you think about this card? Just overall, your opinion as not a not a major card guy. How do you like this Michael Jordan? Autograph? Well, I would I would just talk more about the market for for Michael Jordan in general, which is like. You know, when you think about Michael Jordan, you know, you don't have to think about um, anything else but somebody who has the most sterling reputation of any athlete really ever um, and has, you know, a, a market that has historically always trended in one direction. Maybe it goes up and down a little bit here and there, but it's, it's usually just on an upward trajectory. Um, and so in that sense, you know, I like it. I also love the picture of uh, Michael Jordan's rookie season on the front. So there you go. Uh, yeah, I'm with you on that. Exactly. It's a nice picture of him. He look he looks young. It looks like it's from his rookie year. I don't know for sure, but he definitely looks young. I enough think, there. but it, it looks like, uh, I mean, that looks, uh, it's very small on my screen, but it looks like a, a picture from his rookie season. Yeah. Great autograph. Just, I love how it fills in the whole autograph section um, yeah, great card, great card, and uh, wish I could buy some of it, but alas, I cannot. All right, let's look at the next item. This is a LeBron James. Now, this is an actual rookie patch auto from 2003. This is BGS 8.5. As you can see, 99 copies were made of this card. It is currently trading for a paltry yet staggering $845,000 or $8.50 per share. Let's look at the comps. Here we go. Again, I said trading for 845,000 right now. Recent comps, <laughs> never mind this one from 2009. We all wish we could go back then. Look at that ROI. But in the last year and a half, we've got 1.4 million, 1.3, over 900,000 here and over 1.5 million here. And this copy is trading at $845,000. Again, seems to me like like a steal and i say that because i know of a copy that sold privately with a lesser patch not as not as not, not as much of a three color sold for a million dollars not too long ago and here we have this one you can buy shares of this for six dollars and fifty cents and again that extrapolates to like you know almost 50 percent of this comp from golden in march of 2021 now do note march of 2021 was basically the peak 
we've that we've ever seen in sports cards. But here we are almost a year later and we had a copy sell at 1.4. So now the market has moved since February of 2022 and it's going to be up to everybody on their own to decide if $845,000 is right, too little or too less or too low for this card right now. But another one, I'd probably be personally buying shares of this right now if I could for $6.50 each. What And the way I look at this, Brahm, is it's like I could go, you know, I don't need to go spend a million bucks on this car, but if I want to, if I want to put in, you know, five or six or seven hundred dollars, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna pick up a hundred shares of it. That's still something, you know. How, how about you? Any thoughts on that? No, I, I think I, I totally understand your perspective, and I, I also think, you know, again, long-term value, right? If you think about um, Michael Jordan, people who grew up in that generation. Right. They are coming into success now. And that's why you see a lot of the prices going so high. Think about LeBron James, right? Younger, right? And it's a younger generation that applies to. He is going to be many people's Michael Jordan. Uh, to, to a you know, to a younger generation, he means so much. So again, I think rising tides on LeBron. Yeah. Good. Makes sense. Makes sense. Thank you for that. I'm going to go to a comment here from Brendan Ryan says, has it boiled down to card ladder and market movers being the only checks and balances? Don't they source the data from the same pool? I mean, I, I don't know what you, what you're really getting out there, Brendan, but I think that these are data. They're both data aggregators and they're just giving nice convenient places to go to get comps. Um, so, but they definitely do source the data from the same pool being the results of publicly, published uh or, yeah publicly published results of, of purchases and sales in in the space so um but yeah and I, th I think that uh i personally i trust the data in both of those uh services as far as you know i know card ladder they 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 basically scrutinize every sale that goes through their their system and um i'm not sure how what what market movers does to to ensure the data on their platform but they're bringing it all in from the same place. So, um, okay, let's go to the next one now. Take one more look at this one, the, the LeBron James one more time. As I mentioned, trading at $845,000 with comps as high as $1.5 in the last year and a half. The next item, up for bid, is this. No, just kidding, not up for bid. The next item is this 1961 Fleer Wilt Chamberlain in a PSA 9. An amazing card. I'm a big fan of 61 Fleer, the, the trio of main major rookies from this series. This card is currently trading at $272,000 on the collectible platform or $8.50 a share. Let's look at some comps now. Here we have the most recent ones that are tracked by Card Ladder. Just a less than a month ago, $670,000. Earlier this year, $350,000. At Heritage and PWCC Premier last year, about a year ago, two of them sold for $288,000. And then, of course, April 2021 on Golden, we have over 450 there. Meanwhile, on Collectible right now, it's trading at 272000 which is, you know, less than anything you're seeing on the screen here. But again, the market has moved. So it's up to you and anyone who's considering investing and owning uh, a, a, a fractional interest in this Wilt Chamberlain, how you think today's value on the on the secondary market platform of 272,000, how does that stack up against these comps right here? How do you like Wilt Chamberlain, Brom? Yeah, I mean, legend. <laughs> um, what I would say is the, the card is in you know great condition. And, and like you said, you know, 
um, when you look at it from a, a most recent con perspective, it, you know, it's a, a clear picture. Uh, obviously, everyone has to do their own research and, and make, you know, those decisions on their own. Um, but obviously, you know, a compelling, uh, you know, difference there. Definitely. Okay. Thank you for that. I appreciate you being a part of these discussions, of course, having you on the show. Here we have the next one. I've got this one and two more after it. 1948 Bowman, George Mike and Rookie. This card is among the most important Hall of Fame rookie cards in all of vintage basketball. It's on the, the Mount Rushmore of basketball, according to the PSA set registry. Uh, it's a great card. I've never owned one. I've wanted to. This is a PSA 7. It is currently trading at a value of $23,850, which translates to $3 per share. You can get into this as low as $3 a share. And here are the comps that we have. February 2022, just earlier this year, 33.6. Again, it is now trading at 23.8. So that's like a 33% discount. Uh, 44,000 in January uh, of this year. And then you go back into last year, 43,288 in May of last year and 31.2 at the end of 2020, currently trading at 23,850. I think 23,850 is, is criminally low on this card. I was actually looking at a PSA 5 last year at the National and I was pretty darn close to paying 15 grand for that card. Ended up buying something different. But a seven at twenty three, when when I almost bought a five at fifteen, I think that this is way undervalued myself. I'm not, and I'm not even considering these comps. Yeah, maybe you should be buying this card out. Maybe you should be the one at the end of the transaction. You, maybe I should be the buyer. Maybe I should make an <laughs> offer on it. You're right. Although a five at fifteen is more in my uh, budget than this at at what what and that bring you raise a good question though. What would the what would the voting? What would the voters accept on this card? Would they ex just because the card is currently trading at twenty three eight fifty does not mean that if if collectible received an offer of twenty three eight fifty that the unit holders would vote to accept that? If I was a unit holder, I would reject that in a in a heartbeat. I'd be more I'd be more looking for one of these numbers here, probably in that forty thousand dollar level. So so would I? Go pay 40 for a seven. No, I'm good with a five for 15. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I hear you. But I definitely appreciate the comment. All right, let's look at the next card. Oh, gosh, I love this card too. And maybe that's why I go. There were, there were probably 20 assets on the platform that I could choose from. And I chose these six, I guess, because I love all these cards. But uh, this is a 1954 Hank Aaron. This is his rookie card, 1954 tops. PSA 8.5, that is high grade, currently trading at $152,400 or $12.70 per share. And look at the look at the vibrancy of that orange background, the blue cap. I mean, everything about this card is just spectacular. On a total side note, I'm, I'm currently having an original art piece commissioned of this card to hang up in my rec room. So that's how much I love this card. Here are the comps. So again, here's the card currently trading at $152,000. Here are the comps. Now you can see there's a big difference between pre-pandemic right here and post-pandemic right here. Pre-pandemic, the cards, most cards were trading at this sort of percentage of post-pandemic, you know, 60, 70, $80,000. April, 2021, cards sold for $206,000. Now, 
you can it's trading on 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 collectible for 152,400 again while i do believe that 152,400 is a is a, is a, under the under the most recent comp it's up to you the the potential buyer to decide is the market now telling us that this card and there's no other comp so is the market at a place now where 206,000 in April is equivalent to 152,000 in July. That might be the case. And that might be the case that the current value that it's trading at 152,000 is the right value. But there is a comp saying, hey, one of these 8.5s recently sold for 206. And if you look at this particular copy, I don't know that I've ever seen such a vibrant copy of this card in any grade. So uh, I don't know what this one here looked like, but this one, I don't think it could have been much better. Uh, than this one here at currently trading at 152. What do you think of this card? Do you like the, like this could, I just told you, First of all, I'm commissioning an original art piece of this. I like original art when it is that of sports cards. What do you think of that? No, look, I think it's such an iconic image, such an iconic card. Um, I personally am a huge Hank Aaron fan. Um, you know, I've got a sign ball right over there. Um, you know, for me, uh, this is exactly the kind of thing that that I love. Um, like you said, you know, obviously everyone has to kind of look at the research, do their, do their diligence. Um, but it's definitely a, a super compelling card. And I, I think, you know, those cards which have these iconic images on them, whether it's Honus Wagner, whether it's Mickey Mantle, you know, you think about the 1952 Mickey Mantle card and think about that sort of iconic blue, I think you can kind of get a similar feeling for that orange. Um, you know, that's kind of what I think about when I look at that card. Yeah, no, good thoughts. And um, you must be onto something because the next card we're going to look at is a 52 tops Mickey Mantle. That'll be the last one that we're going to look at <laughs> uh, once more. One more time on this on this Hank Aaron currently trading at 152,000. You can buy shares of this on the collectible platform for twelve dollars and seventy cents, which is you know about uh, 25 percent lower than this most recent comp on record right now here of two hundred and six thousand four hundred dollars. Okay, let's go to the next card. This one here, and I, I pause. I don't own this card. I've never owned a copy of this card. Uh, I do love it, and it is on my want list, but of course in like the minimum grade possible because these cards are very expensive to buy. So this is a PSA 852 tops. It is not his rookie card, It is his, but it is probably, uh, it is his most important card. And in my opinion, it is the most iconic card in the whole hobby, in my opinion. Uh, so you just can't you you, you can't um, underestimate the importance of the 52 tops Mickey Mantle. It is currently trading on the collectible platform for twenty one dollars and twenty five cents per share, or one million and thirty thousand dollars. Let's look at the comps. Here we go. The last pardon? No, I was gonna say I couldn't see. What was the grade? It's a it's a PSA eight. Oh wow! Yeah, it's a PSA eight. They sell for a million and more. Well, and here you here right here we can see the last five comps on this card, with the most recent one being in February on Heritage, sold for over 1.5 million. Golden sold one in last October, over two million. Right after Memory Lane sold one of theirs for over 2.1 million, and then you have a couple on Golden at 861. Uh, just so it's interesting here that they went from 861 in May of 2021 to two million one hundred thousand. I don't know what happened in those two months between there or six weeks, it looks like, six or seven weeks, it looks like. But I do know that 
vintage was lagging behind modern in terms of just the growth rate of values. And maybe that's what happened there. Maybe this is when that, when vintage caught up, which it for all intents and purposes has caught up in any event, here are your comps. Here is the card currently trading for a million 30, uh, which even compared to 861 isn't much more, but these are more recent comps. So again, up to everyone to decide if, you know, is a million 30 today's fair price or is, a, or is it more in line with some of these comps here? Either way, you can now purchase shares of this card on the collectible platform for $21.25. All right. You already made comments on the 52 tops mantle before you even know, knew we were going to look at one. But the more you look at it, isn't it just such a special, special sports card? Uh, it's, you know, when you think about the most important cards in my mind, I think about that card and I think about a T206 Honus Wagner. Those are the cards. Um, so, you know, for me, also, you know, growing up in New York, Mickey Mantle had sort of a, a special place in my heart. Um, but, you know, I, I think for me, that's one of the most interesting things that I would love to one day own. <laughs> You know, like that, that card obviously just has so much cultural, you know, historical importance, um, iconic image, just the card itself. Um, and so, you know, for me, that's one that I love. Yeah, same here. To me, it is the number one most iconic card in the hobby, followed by the Honus Wagner. And then from there, you've got the Michael Jordan 86 Fleer to me, followed by a toss-up between the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie from Upper Deck and the Wayne Gretzky rookie from OPG and Tops. I think those are the yeah. top five iconic cards in the hobby. But that's a just that's what that could be a whole episode in itself going through that uh, <laughs> that exercise. Brom, I want to thank you for joining us uh, this week on Collectible Live. Uh, great guest, great insights. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you to the chat for joining and engaging. Really appreciate you guys as always. Uh, any final words from you, Brom? No, thank you so, so much for having me. Uh, I was super excited to be invited to this chat. Um, and yeah, you know, just look forward to tuning in next week for whoever you've got lined up next. Well, I will mention that this is the last episode of Collectible Live until what will be, I believe, August the 6th, Sunday, August the 6th. I will be in New York City on vacation next week and I will be at the National the week after. So um We've taken a little hiatus from Collectible Live here while I'm off on travels, and then we'll be back uh, as we were, as we have been. So this is actually episode number 40 of Collectible Live, an anniversary episode. So, Brom, glad to have you joining for that. Um, and that's it. We're going to end it now, Brom. You hang tight right there. Everybody else, have a great week ahead. And if we're going to see you at the National, um, or I'll be at the, I will be at what is called the Layover at Bleecker Trading next Monday. Hope to see a bunch of you there. And definitely, if you run into me at the National, flag me down. Let's say hello. I want to meet as many of you as I can. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Have a great week ahead. Brom, thank you again. Hang tight. This episode is now over. <laughs>